since I've been born, catch this, we've lost more lives to guns in the U.S. than in all of the wars in in, in U.S. history combined. Like, so this, this epidemic of gun violence is just, um, uh, it, it's, it's stunning. And, and, and um, uh, you know, after Sandy Hook, uh, the mass shooting in the school there, you know, everybody said never again. I live on either side of Then you tethered like an anchor when I was caught by the wind. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and I've recorded this intro way too many times. <laughs> Technology sometimes is not my friend. You know, I just didn't plug the right cord in and was recording directly into my laptop. You guys would have not wanted to hear that version. But anyway, uh, thank you for joining. Uh, we are here this week with a very special guest who um, I have no real good reason uh, as to why it's taken us so long to get him on the show. But uh, things happen as they should, when they should. I, I, I certainly believe that to be true. And uh, uh, this guest, of course, is Shane Claiborne. And Shane uh, is a Christian activist and author who's written a number of books, uh, I think, that are more relevant now than ever, um, including one of the books that he wrote, uh, co-wrote recently uh, that could not be more relevant now uh, called Beating Guns. And so uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have Shane on is to talk about uh, what's going on in the country right now? It just seems, at least, that there are more gun-related deaths than ever before, whether we're talking about school shootings, which seem to be more prevalent now than ever, uh, and also um, shootings of our brothers and sisters of color. And so um, definitely want to talk to Shane about that. Like I said, he is a, a, a big-time activist, definitely one of those guys who puts his money where his mouth is and and is definitely boots on the ground in the street, uh, with, with people, um, you know, trying to enact change, um, in society. So, uh, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Uh, before we get to Shane though, I want to talk a little bit about this week's musical guest. The band is called the collection. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed the music, uh, we do have a Spotify playlist, um, that I maintain, uh, I'll put a song on there by each band or artist that we use on the podcast and every podcast episode has a new, uh, and different artist. And so, uh, if you like the music, you want to check out some of the prior artists that we've used and featured on the podcast, uh, just type in to Spotify the Deconstructionist and you'll see our playlist pop up. Uh, you can follow it there. And uh, like I said, every new episode, new song gets added. Um, I think we've got over 100 songs on there now, which is crazy to think about. Uh, but yet here we are. And uh, coming coming near the end of year four, I think, at this point. So uh, crazy to think about. So anyway, uh, if you like them, go out and support them as well. We'll have all their links in the show notes, uh, especially now bands can't really tour at the moment due to the pandemic. And so um, that obviously eliminates one of their ways of uh, making a living. So uh, go out and support those artists uh, as best you can. Um, realize uh, in some instances, money is tight. So, you know, uh, I do what I can to try to try to help support those artists as well. Um, if you want to stay on top of what we're up to, the best place to go is www.thedeconstructionists.com. Uh, there you can find our blog. You can find links to our uh, uh, social media. You can find past episodes uh, and show notes there. And you can also find links to um, our Patreon page. So if you want to support us there, 
a bunch of different types of packages and, and you can join our Patreon family there as well. Um, other than that, that's all I've got for you. Working on some new things for the website. Uh, so hopefully uh, we can get that uh, up around uh, the holidays. We'll see. COVID has kind of thrown that plan off a little bit because uh, it involves getting together with other people uh, to collaborate on things. So tricky, tricky, tricky. But anywho, uh, we'll get to this week's episode. Uh, next month in October, we've got some really cool topics that we're going to cover. Uh, one episode uh, that I recorded way back when um, about heaven and hell. And then the other episode, we'll dive into uh, the, the idea, the theological concept of the rapture and um, apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic, that's hard to say, apocalyptic uh, theology and things of that nature. So some fun stuff coming up that uh, I think you guys will like. So with that, without further ado, I bring you Shane freaking Claiborne. So show me how to set my feet back on the ground, baby. Welcome to The Deconstructionist. I'm super excited today uh, to welcome Shane Claiborne uh, to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to, to be with us. Yeah, man, I'm pumped to be here, pumped to deconstruct some stuff with you. And uh, yeah, it's good, good to be a conversation partner, man. Absolutely. And one of the, I think one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on, we, we, we've, wanted, we've had you on our list to get <laughs> for a while. Uh, but one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on specifically uh, right now is because um, you're really actively involved in kind of this nonviolent, peaceful protest. And obviously, uh, you know, anybody who, who's alive right now can't, can't help but notice, you know, all of the protesting and, and the, the kind of the outrage, justifiable outrage uh, that's happening around the country right now. Um, so I definitely, uh, you know, want to kind of dive into that with you. But before we do that, um, you've got such a cool journey of your own, a, a cool background. Uh, so, I mean, your, uh, uh, your work with Mother Teresa, for example, your time in the Middle East, um, you founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia, and, and you head up Red Letter Christians. Like, I, first of all, I got to ask you about Mother Teresa. I mean, everybody knows who that is. How in the world did you come to work with Mother Teresa? Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, she, she's a, you know she's been a bright light in the world for sure, and she was uh, an inspiration for me. So, you know, I grew up in the Bible Belt. I'm I'm down uh, in Tennessee, John. I'm actually I, I'm I'm uh, quarantining because I've been you know marching on Washington and all that. We'll talk about all that, but I'm living on a school bus converted into a solar powered tiny house. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's in a, awesome. In a, uh, in Tennessee where I grew up hanging out with my mom and family a little bit now. And, um, but I, you know, grew up here, I fell in love with Jesus here. Uh, when I, when I was in middle school, you know, had a like altar call born again experience. And then, you know, I started seeing some real disturbing contradictions in uh, you know, in the church and, you know, just in the culture too, down in the South here, we got, sweet tea and Southern hospitality. And we've also got a lot of residue of racism, you know, and, and I, I, my high school, John had the Confederate flag, mm. um, on everything. I mean, it we were the Maryville high school rebels. So it was on our, uh, you know, murals on our walls, on our football uniforms, on our lunchroom trays, it was everywhere. And, and so I, I didn't have eyes to see some of that. And so I, you know, got out of it a little bit. So I, 
I um, ended up going to school in Philly, and it's there that you know I felt like, man, we gotta we gotta figure out how to really embody the stuff that Jesus talked about. You know, I mean, this isn't about Christian bumper stickers and T-shirts. I mean, it, you know, Jesus said they're going to know us by our love, so uh, Christians are not always known by our love, and so we you know we start thinking, <laughs> who's, who's still doing? Who's, who's giving this thing a pretty good shot? And Mother Teresa you know, was, was obviously one of the first folks who came to mind. She was still alive and had given up so much to go to, you know, what she called the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. So we wrote her a letter, man. And, uh, when you're, when you're like 19 years old, nothing's impossible, you know? And so we did, we just were like, we're going to go work for the summer out there. And, um, Never got a letter back, so we we started calling nuns on the phone. <laughs> wow. I'll never I'll never forget this one Catholic nun. You know, some of them thought we were prank callers and hung up on us, but we had this one nun that was like, "Let me see if I got a number." And she gave us a number, and I called it. Mother Teresa picked up the phone. No way! And uh, oh my god, yeah. And I said, "Well, you know, we'd love to come work with you. We're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, how to live, you know, a life of love." And 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 she said, just point blank, "Well, come on." And, uh, <laughs> wow. And, and I, you know, I'm thinking like, man, where are we going to sleep? You know, like, what are yeah. we going to eat? And so I asked her that. And she goes, God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. God will take care of you, you know, quoting Jesus. And I, <laughs> I thought, I hope that works when I tell my mom that. So that's what we did, man. We went, we went out there and we worked, uh, for as long as we could, pretty much the whole summer in between my college years. And I've been back there since. Um, but you know, she's she's one of those that um, I often say the the gospel, you know, our faith spreads not by force but by fascination, and I think she's one of those folks that really fascinated me uh, with her love for God, her love for marginalized people. So uh, it was a gift to get to work with her, and uh, yeah, and then she died shortly after we got back. But um, you know, one of the most important lessons I learned from Mother Teresa was you don't have to go to Calcutta to find Calcutta. And she used to say, uh, Calcuttas are everywhere if we'll only have eyes to see. So pray that God would give you the eyes to see uh, the the suffering, the, you know, the loneliness, the, the, um, those who are, you know, bullied and ostracized, you know, right, right where you are. So we came back really uh, uh, hoping to figure out what that meant for us, you know, right over here. And so been in Philadelphia for the past 25 years, forming a little community there on the North side. Oh, that's amazing. So obviously that, that had a huge impact on, on the work that you would do later. Likewise, uh, talk a little bit about your experience in the middle East and, and how seeing, you know, uh, presumably violence and war firsthand, like how did that, uh, kind of change and shape the, the, the work that you would do later? Well, yeah, so when I got back from, you know, so we, we kind of went on with college and finished up, started our community, and then September 11th happened. And and I'll can I, I, I I'll never forget, you know, being in Philadelphia, we were sort of sandwiched between New York and D.C., so we just felt the, um, the, the shock of that um, event. And, you know, all kinds of things happened. I remember someone dropped a banner from City Hall in Philly that said, let's kill them all mm. and let God sort them out. Wow. Um, and, and so there were really, you know, these, these kind of horrific expressions of people's grief and, 
anger, you know, and fears. But then I heard about a group of folks that were directly impacted. So they had lost their immediate loved ones, their spouses, their children, their moms and dads. And this group, uh, which became known as Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, they got together um, really as a support group, you know, in the trauma of post 9-11 trauma. And they saw the war beginning and they thought, this, this is not going to heal the wounds of, of that violence. And um, they went on delegations to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, um, man, I, I looked at that. I mean, they came back with these tremendous stories, gifts from Iraqi people to the people in New York and D.C. that lost their loved ones, you know. Uh, so so I, I got a call um, from a friend that said, we're taking a delegation of faith leaders and others, you know, doctors and nurses, people that want to go to Iraq to stand against the war. And I thought, you know, I, I, I think I need to pray about that a little bit. You know, <laughs> I need to talk to my mom. And uh, But I ended up going in March of 2003. Um, and what we weren't, you know, what wasn't real clear at that time was we, we were there during the beginning of the bombing of Baghdad. So oh. we were there during, you know, the shock and awe campaign, um, which I understand was like 900 bombs a day that were being dropped on Baghdad, and we lived in Baghdad. So it was absolutely horrifying. I, I mean, um, the things that we saw, that we experienced, it's, it's really hard to put words to, you know. Um, um, and, and yet, I became more convinced than ever before that violence doesn't solve the violence, you know, that, that as Dr. King said, hatred can't drive out hatred. And, you know, we just add fuel to the fires of already existing hostilities when we, we try to return violence for violence. So, um, uh, I was there for the whole month, you know, visiting hospitals, visiting sites like the Armoria shelter, which, you know, people here don't even, some of us don't even know these things because there's, but it's a shelter that was filled with women and children uh, they didn't even allow men in. They wanted to make sure the children could could get in, and um, it was filled with women and children when two smart bombs were uh, hit it, and they just incinerated everyone um, inside. Um, so I saw, you know, I saw the the preservation of that site to memorialize the dozens and dozens of people that were killed there. So I mean, these, these things, you know, they just haunt me. But it, what I also saw, John, that um, changed me too was. Um, the hope and the deep roots of my faith there. So in the middle of the bombing, there was a gathering of Christians and bishops, leaders, I mean, hundreds of folks from all different kind of streams of Christianity had gathered together to worship and to pray for peace. And um, I'll never forget, they, they read a statement that had been collaboratively written, and it was addressed to Muslims, and it said, we want you to know that we love you, that we come from the same dirt, of this earth that God breathed life into. Uh, we come from the same dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, <laughs> they said yeah. we got to learn to love each other. And then that one of the bishops pointed to the cross and he said, this cross makes no sense to the smart bombs. It makes no sense to the world of violence, but it's this cross that shows us what God is like. And God uh, shows us a way that we can live in light of a violent world without mirroring that violence to even forgive those who are hurting us. And the whole place erupted, um, in Arabic singing amazing grace. <laughs> you oh know, and I, I still get 
chills, you know, as I think, as I remember it, but they're singing amazing grace. And, you know, I, I was shaken. I was so emotional. I ran up to the altar and I, I got the Bishop after the service. And I said, I got to tell you, it's one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. I said, I feel the spirit just like moving in my soul. And then I said something a little ignorant. I said, I had no idea that there were this many Christians in Iraq. And the Bishop just looked at me very gently and he goes, yeah, this is where Christianity started. <laughs> he pointed yep. out the window and he said, that's the Tigris River and the Euphrates. He said, have you heard of them? He goes, the Garden of Eden is right down the street here. And then he said, uh, uh, "He said you, you didn't invent Christianity in America. You guys just domesticated it. And he oh, said, I yeah. want you to, to go back and tell people that we are praying for them to remember who they are. And uh, so, boy, that those words to remember who we are, uh, they, they resonate in my soul, especially as a, as, at such a time as this, in this moment that we're living in right now, where I think much of the church has kind of forgotten who we are. Oh, gosh, that's so true. And, and it's crazy because those are the types of stories that you never hear in the news. It's always like the fringe groups who are taking the spotlight, and that's just so incredibly sad to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the my experience in Iraq. I mean, I met with intellectuals. I met with you know imams. I met with so many different people. Um, I met with a group of of Muslims that had started a peace team, also convinced that not nonviolence was the only way forward. And so it was called the Muslim Peacemaker Teams, and we were the Christian Peacemaker Teams. We worked together and just phenomenal. I, I'll never forget one uh, Iraqi intellectual. He said, "Well, you know that." our country has some weapons because your government has the receipts from them, you know? And then he went yeah. on to show me, you know, that the 60 bell helicopters that gassed the Kurds came from the U S you know, and all the complicity that we've had with arming these, you know, horrific dictators. And, and you think of the words of Jesus that said, you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. I mean, we, we've lived that the truth of that over and over and over again. Yeah, it's it's un, unreal. I was I was reading uh, I, I was reading a couple of things the other day uh, on the topic, and it just kind of made me think back to even the the Old Testament, man. Like the like Genesis, the very beginning, where it talks about you know like how how different our God is from the other gods of the other uh, you know religions at the time, where you know our God even in creation created through peace. Like he didn't have to, you know win some battle against some other deity in order to create life. Like it was, it was through peaceful means. It starts like at the very beginning of our book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, and, and you, you get the sense that the, you know, the very first fruits, um, of our sin, you know, outside the garden of Eden as that, you know, after the Adam and Eve story, like one of the first stories we have is Cain and Abel, you know, it's a brother killing his own brother. And, and, and as you read that story, it says the blood cried out to God from the ground. And, you know, I, I feel like that, bl- that blood has been crying out to God from the ground ever since, you know, and, and in our country, think of Michael Brown and Ferguson left out in the street for so long. And you think of all the, you know, one, um, child of God after another, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, you know, that their, their blood cries out to God. Um, so, um, the the whole story i think of of scripture is is about a god who is suffering with those who are suffering who's liberating um folks from the things that are destroying their life um and uh so it's a it's a beautiful story man I, that's a story i built my life around <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely something I, I wanted to, to to get your take on is obviously like a lot of the work that you do. Uh, I mean, you've got a book out uh, called Beating Guns and, and you're part of an organization that literally takes guns and, and melts them into, you know, like shovels and, and, and garden equipment. Like with, with all this craziness in the news, I feel like 2020 has just gone off the rails at this point. You know, it just seems like every day. There's there's another shooting, whether it's uh, you know the, the murder of uh, uh, of a brother, some some of our brothers and sisters from the uh, from from the black community, or like a school shooting, and it's almost just nonstop. Like, what I mean is it is it increasing or is it just you know the 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 24 hour news cycle just picks up on it uh, a lot more these days? But it it feels like you know because I think you and I are pretty close to the same age. And I remember Columbine. That was a, a very yeah. rare thing, and that was so shocking uh, to the nation at the time because that sort of thing just never happened. But now it feels like you know every other week something like that's happening. Well, that's, it's a great question. I think a, a couple of things have happened. Is our 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 racism has not gotten worse; it's just gotten exposed. Right? It's getting recorded. You know, so police shootings are nothing new. I think even our mass shootings are are. Uh, epidemic of gun violence is, I, I think what's happening is more and more people's hearts are being sensitized to the lives that are just senselessly cut short, you know? Um, so, I mean, we stand alone in the, in the entire industrialized world in the sense that like, um, uh, our, our murder, our, our gun deaths in this country, um, homicides and suicides, but the, the, the lives that are lost to guns are over 30,000. Um, right now they're like 38,000 a year. It's over a hundred deaths a year. I mean, a hundred deaths a day, you know, and you think, man, every, every one of these is a child of God. And, um, uh, it just doesn't have to be that way, you know? So in my, in our lifetime, I don't know how old you are, man, but I'm 45 this year. And, and, and since I've been born, Catch this. We've lost more lives to guns in the U.S. than in all of the wars in, in, in U.S. history combined. Like, so this, this epidemic of gun violence is just, um, uh, it's, it, it's stunning. And, 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 um, uh, you know, after Sandy Hook, the mass shooting in the school there, you know, everybody said never again but we've let it happen again and again and again. But I, I think that's changing, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah, as I started reading, beating, uh, writing the book, beating guns, what we saw was that we've got f- five times more gun shops than McDonald's restaurants. <laughs> five times more gun shops. We've got, I mean, this is, it, it's, Funny on the one end, it's absolutely not funny on the other. I mean, we've got like 5% of the world's population and we've got almost half of the world's guns. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got more guns than people in the United States. And yet, like, over, um, you, you know, you, you look at that and you just so, – so, to me, this was a spiritual crisis um, because I grew up with guns. I grew up, you know, in Tennessee hunting with my grandfather and things like that. And yet, you come to see the, that um, we – the, the culture that we're living in right now where so many lives are lost from guns is, is, uh, uh, it comes largely from our faith as well, because white Christians are the highest gun owning demographic in America, white Christians. And so I, you know, I started to wrestle with some of that and, um, and we were inspired by 
the vision of the prophets Mike and Isaiah of God's people will beat their swords into plows or spears into pruning hooks. It's this beautiful vision of turning from death to life and from transforming instruments that are meant to kill into you know tools that are meant to cultivate life. And uh, so we started doing it, and we, we actually did our first weapons conversion on the anniversary of 9-11, the 10th anniversary, and it was a weapon of war. It was, our first donated gun was an AK-47, and we turned it into a shovel and a rake. And it was so powerful, bro, that we've you know been doing it ever since. Now we've got a whole national network called Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards, that's transforming guns into garden tools. And we say, and other life-giving things, because we're making all kinds of stuff out of guns these days. I've got this hard kind of heartache I've got a subtle sting of pain Making my way yeah, you've got you've got some pictures in the book, and it's just I mean it's incredible uh, the the artwork uh, even that that uh, gets created out of out of these uh, these weapons. Um, one of the things I, I definitely want to to discuss talk about is uh, this guns uh, a, a lot a lot like uh, a lot of other subjects that I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll get to uh, seems to have been something that's been politicized, and so. Uh, one of the things I think was really interesting, one of my favorite quotes in your book is where you quote your friend James Atwood, where he says, gun violence is nonpartisan. And then you go on to say, it's also colorblind guns kill Republicans, Democrats, and people who, ha- who hate politics altogether. The victims of violence yeah. are white, black, and brown. They are boys and girls, gay and straight, young and old. They are rich and poor, urban, suburban, and rural. No one escapes the reach of guns. So – how do we how do we fix something that is so politicized at this point? Because we see gun violence time and time again, and we we see this just these useless hopes and prayers, you know, and and, and a lack of actual action. And and I think most people, once we once we remove some of the the political nonsense from it, really just are asking for common sense gun reforms. But yeah, like, but right. no, we can't even accomplish that. So, like, what? How do we? What do we do? Where do we even start with that? Yeah. So, I, I think we've got to get past the kind of uh, the theatrics of the, you know, the kind of political extremes um, of the. Um, I, I often say the problem isn't gun owners. The problem is gun extremists. You know, and uh, like the the NRA, the National Rifle Association. It says, you know, they claim to have 5 million members, which if they do, uh, what that means is that over 90% of gun owners are not a part of the NRA. So they kind of have this colonizing narrative that they represent all gun owners. But studies are showing like over and over, I mean, across the board and consistently that 80% of gun owners are concerned about common sense gun laws. Like they want to see... Things like a limit to the capacity a gun can shoot. You know, uh, I, I was on a march with some uh, folks that they had t- shirts that said hunters against assault rifles. And then on the back, it said, you don't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer. <laughs> you right. know? Yes. So they're going like, why do we need AR-15s, guns that are designed? 
to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And that's exactly what they keep getting used for, you know, like things um, like prohibiting domestic abusers from acquiring guns. Cause we know there's a real direct connection to domestic abuse and domestic homicide, you know, raise, raising the minimum wage, uh, minimum age, you know, for, um, owning a gun, this, this kid in, um, that, that shot and killed two people in Kenosha, um, was 17 years old, you know, and, and, um, in many states, the, the, the age to own, uh, an assault rifle is, you know, 18 years old, but you're going, man, here's someone that can't vote, can't buy a beer, you know, yeah, <laughs> can't join the military, but can, you know, get a hold of an assault rifle. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the stat right now is that 62% of gun owners find themselves at odds with the NRA, but the NRA still owns and controls a lot of the politicians, you know? So I think we we really have to have a better conversation. That's what we tried to do in the beating guns book. And you're right. I think some of it is like, we need better laws. Like there's some things like, you know, AR 15s. I don't even think they should be on our streets. Um, but no, you know, this idea that if, if they take away assault rifles, they're going to come for our hunting rifles. I just don't think that's true. You know, I, I think that, um, when the second amendment was written, one, they put well-regulated into the amendment very deliberately because they didn't think, you know, there should be no gun regulations or restrictions. Um, and guns also shot one round a minute and now they shoot a hundred rounds a minute, you know? So I, you know, I think about cars and it is a helpful thing to think, you know, of all of the things that we've done to keep ourselves safe from cars, which are not even meant to kill, but they can be deadly. So we've added seatbelts, driver's licenses, you know, you got to register your car. Um, uh, you, you got to pass a driving test. There's a limit to the alcohol. You can use speed limits, you know, all that. And if you're irresponsible with your car, you, you lose your license, you know? So I, I think like we, somehow we have this immunity with guns that there's, there's really, uh, no, uh, regulations that have been passed. I think there's even technology, you know, you think of airbags and different things that we put into cars and, um, we totally have the capacity to have, uh, finger, fingerprint operated guns, smart gun technology that would prevent suicide. That would prevent someone stealing a gun and using it or, you know, finding a gun in the house and accidentally killing someone, a child, you know, or something like that. So I think, um, fingerprint technology, there's so many things that we can do. So we just got to do it. You know, we, we have no scarcity, uh, other than our willpower. I think, you know, as it, like that, that's the only thing really holding us back. Yeah. It's, it's just, and again, it's, it's just so aggravating. You see the politicization of, of topics like that. Um, you know, it just, just this week, our, our favorite president, um, I'm joking. Um, it's, it made some comment about how, you know, if a vote for the other side, a vote for the Democrats, uh, is, is basically means that, uh, Babies are going to get murdered. Your guns are going to get taken away, and all this really extreme nonsense. That's just simply not true. But, but the fact of the matter is, there is a huge uh, number of people out there who believe that to be true. That think that, and and, and it seems to me that that contributes to, um, you know, stalling or, or stagnating any actual change. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, I I grew up, you know, talking about the only political. Uh, like, like topic we talked about was, uh, abortion really, you know, and, and maybe uh, sexuality, uh, you know, same sex marriage or something, but it was like, 
that was the only thing that mattered. And I think what's happening now is there's a whole generation that may care deeply about those two issues, but they care about a whole lot of other stuff too, you know? And I, I saw that in my own life. You know, the irony was we could, you could say that you're pro-life in America and still be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, you know, like yeah. anti-life on every other issue. So I'm, um, I'm actually writing a book now on a better ethic of life, you know, that this, to, to speak, pro-life from womb to tomb and you know for me um gun violence the death penalty i've written books on both of those my passion to end police violence all of those are issues of life and death uh, because i believe you know every single person is created in the image of god and you know life doesn't begin at birth you know in the womb at conception and end at birth like life matters after death just as much as before death. So, um, you know, that, that, that's really, um, where my heart is. And I, I, I think that, you know, when we look at the current crisis in our country, we have a president that said I could shoot someone on fifth Avenue and and not lose any supporters, you know, and I, and I think he, he may very well have been, been right about that. And, and, but for me, what breaks my heart is the complicity of many Christians who were followers of the Prince of Peace. You know, right. like you would think that we would have a better uh, ethic and passion for life. And when you look at the gun and the cross, they give you two very different versions of what power looks like. You know, and one says, I'm willing to die, and the other says, I'm willing to kill. And Jesus is love your enemy. It, you know, flies in the face of the NRA stand your ground. You know, this idea that um, Jesus said, you know, we should be willing to die. And the early Christians said, but we can never kill. You know, we can die for Jesus, but we can't kill for Christ. Like, you, it's just inconceivable that we would justify violence in the name of the Prince of Peace. So that's, you know, that's really troubling for me because I've seen a lot of my fellow Christians that are, um, would say they're pro-life on abortion, but they're really the obstacles on, of uh, to life on some of these other issues. Yeah, like, and, and one of the things I want to get your take on too is is just this idea that, as, as you kind of alluded to, there for a long time a lot of folks seem to have kind of fallen into this trap of being a, a single issue voter, uh, with abortion being the the primary one. And it's like I keep I keep looking at that and and thinking to myself like how many times. You know, and maybe this is just the nerd in me who uh, who grew up loving social studies. But like, you know, knowing how the legislative branch works, Congress, you know, aka Congress, like how many times has the Republican Party, you know, who have who have tied themselves to Christianity in this weird way, uh, had the the majority in Congress and yet not not changed a thing when it comes to abortion? It's like, how many times are are we going to play this you know Lucy and Charlie Brown game where? where she promises to let him kick the ball and then pulls it away at the last second. And, but yet people continue to cast their vote uh, on that one issue when, as you said, there are a host of other uh, issues out there worthy of uh, time and attention. Yeah, I think, I think it said, you know, there's folks that are worried about other people's unborn children um, so much that they can't even see people's already born children, you know, and, and I, I do I do care about reducing and eradicating abortion. It, um, but it, it's not the only issue that I care about. You know, I, I, I think the Democrats could do a whole lot better job navigating that. The language used to be, you know, a 
abortion should be legal, safe, and rare, and we all need to work it to make it rare and rarer. And a part of that is, you know, adequate health care and other things. Um, and yet, like, once you get outside of the periphery of that conversation, you see all the lives that are being lost. Um, like, like gun, gun violence is the number one cause of death of African-American children, number one. You know, you look at the death penalty, and the death penalty would not stand a chance without the support of Christians. The Bible Belt is the death belt. I mean, it's exactly mm. where executions are happening, like here in Tennessee. We're still using the electric chair in Tennessee wow. and have a governor that tweets Bible verses on Sunday morning, you know, and, and this is the problem, you know, is that they don't see that kind of inconsistency in, in, in the ethic of life. And um, so... That's, uh, you know, folks would say, often say, well, why did you write a book about the death penalty and about guns and not other issues? And I said, well, on those two, like, it was really clear to me that we, yeah. we needed a revival in the church, you know? Yes. Like, uh, so, but, but I, you know, I, I think uh, whether it's, you know, the, the, the Iraq and the, the war, the military economy, which is just blows the mind, you know, the, the we, we've got the capacity of, over a hundred thousand Hiroshima bombs in the U.S. We've got bombs now that are eighty times the strength of the Hiroshima bomb, which killed a hundred thousand people on impact, maybe more. You know, and you think like, who in the world believes that we should have bombs that can kill a million people? You know, like like that just doesn't make any sense to me. And so, you know, if we really believe that Jesus meant blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, for they are the children of God, then we, we've got some real hard work to do. Um, and, and, and so I, I want to be a consistent voice for, for life and for peace. And um, Dr. King was one of those. You know, he said, uh, I've ta- taught the kids in the city that violence won't solve their problem. But then they asked me, why does our government use massive doses of violence to try to bring the change it wants in the world? And he said, I knew I couldn't speak against the violence of the young people in our ghettos without speaking against the violence of our own government. And, and he began to denounce, you know, the Vietnam war. So I think that that's a, that consistent ethic of life. I see it in the early church, you know, Cyprian, one of the great thinkers of the early church said that when an individual kills another person, we call it evil, but somehow when the state does it, we sanctify it and we call it justice. You know, so whether it's the death penalty or war, we somehow give the state this um, uh, license to kill that we would never give to an individual. And and I, I think all of that's part of the, you know, the holes in our theology that we need to work on. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, so, t- so talk a little bit about that because, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about kind of, I don't know, where lack of a better way of putting it, but you know, the American Christianity is kind of seems like deviated from the, from the message a little, you know, we're, you know, we say we believe in Jesus on one hand and then we kind of do the complete opposite and support, you know, politicians and, and policies that are the complete opposite. 
And it, so how do we, how do we begin that conversation? As you, as you put it, I think once, uh, instead of talking at one another, talking to one another and actually enacting some sort of change, you know? Yeah. Well, I, there's a few places I think we need to start. And, and one of them is I, I think sometimes what we have is, is not a compassion problem as much as a proximity problem, right? That, that we, it's hard to, uh, to care about gun violence in an abstract sense until gun violence has a name and a face. And that's really one of the powerful things about the Black Lives Matter movement is that they've put names and faces. They've made police violence personal. You know, now we see it. We know the names. Um, and I think that that's true on immigration. It's true um, when it comes to the death penalty. You know, I visit folks on death row. I know the stories of what Jesus has done in their lives. And then I watch, you know, a governor execute them. And, and so that I think that proximity is exactly what Jesus does, you know, for us is God leaves all the comfort of heaven to join the suffering is born a brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish refugee. That's Jesus. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's executed on a cross. Like, he's marginalized in almost every way imaginable um, and calls us into the suffering of the world. So I think, I think it's a very radical call to, to lean in to the pain. Uh, so I think that's, a, you know, a starting point, because until injustice has names and faces and becomes personal it's hard to have a fire in our bones to end it you know and that it, for me like when i saw a 19 year old killed in front of me um that was one of those points where i i heard the words of dr king resonate in my soul which are we're called to be the good samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch but after you lift so many people out of the ditch you start you start to say we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. <laughs> you know we gotta yeah. we gotta do something about why people are getting killed. Um, so you know that. So I think proximity makes a difference, um, and it's very easy to talk about people, but not to talk to them. You know, it's it's you know folks will talk about Muslims or refugees or whatever in a real kind of abstract sense, but I think we we've, we've got to be in relationship to each other. Um, and then I, I think we've got to realize that, especially right now in America, there's a racial fault line. Like there, that white folks and people of color are experiencing two different Americas. Uh, and it's been that way for a while, I think, for a lot of folks. But we're starting to realize that. So when you think of things like systemic injustice, when you ask white folks, does racism, systemic racism affect policing or our criminal justice system people white people say not really you got a few bad apples but the system works you know you ask people of color and they 80 percent of them the exact opposite say absolutely 400 years of racism you know yeah. still has a, a fingerprint you know um and and so i think that's you know the same with trump white christians overwhelmingly still support trump non-white christians overwhelmingly don't so it's it's more of a a white thing than a, a, a faith thing, you know, because it, it really is, that's the common denominator in all of this. And I think those of us that are white, we've got some reckoning to do, you know, on the back, it's no coincidence that this comes on the back of the first black president, the change, changing demographics of our country reflected in Congress, you know, all of this, there's this white fear, white anxiety, white fragility that is surfacing in so many troubling ways. Um, so I, mean, I think it's very true that Trump didn't change America. He just revealed America. And, and, and the things that are surfacing are 
unbelievably disturbing, you know, as we're seeing like, you know, white militia in our streets and we're, you know, uh, we really see this kind of racial reckoning um, that uh, has, has a lot to do with uh, 400 years worth of history that we haven't we haven't healed, you know, and so it's like a festering wound that's continuing to uh, be untreated. And until we get our history right, we're not going to get our future right together. true so you you've definitely been been pretty active in in like the protests and and that sort of thing so what 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 has been your experience down on uh the the ground floor uh in terms of like conversations that you've had with people who are out protesting as well and and i'm sure interacting with people who come from all sorts of different backgrounds uh faith backgrounds you know no faith at all uh what 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 has your experience been with that yeah, well, well, first of all, I'll say, too, that I have been very active recently, but we've also been really active for the last 25 years in trying to have public demonstrations that um, uh, challenge those, you know, injustices. And, and we, we often um, call them public witnesses. You know, they're ways to publicly expose the things that are wrong. So Dr. King says, our job is to expose injustice so that it becomes so uncomfortable that people can't help but respond, you know? Yeah. So I think that's, that's what good protest does, is it exposes injustice. And I think most powerfully, um, nonviolence exposes the systems of violence. And it's why I'm, I'm very passionate about nonviolent protest. Dr. King, Gandhi, so many others saw it. Um, not just as faithful, though it is that, but also as effective in holding a mirror up to the, the kind of powers of violence in our culture. Um, and uh, so, you know, when Do- Dr. King used to say, y- you can hate us and we will still love you. You can put your dogs on us and we will still love you. You can throw us in jail and we will still love you. You can burn down our houses and we will still love you. You can threaten the lives of our children and we will still love you, but we will wear you down by our love. <laughs> and we will, we will celebrate your conversion to love, you know, because we are not meant to hate. We learn to hate and we can unlearn it. Uh, so I, I believe that. So I, I believe that, you know, when we're in the streets, I like to say that we're not just protesting, John, but we're protestifying. We're, we're <laughs> proclaiming how things can be made right, you know. Um, but, but that begins, I think, by um, uh, amplifying the voices of people that are not being heard. Um, so we've done that in a lot of different ways over the years. You know, I, I remember when the um, and we're still working on the immigration issues, but when uh, the lives of dreamers were really at, at stake, we had some of our, our immigrant young people gather dreams of immigrant families from all over the U.S., and we carried 3,000 of those dreams into the halls of Congress, and we read them out loud uh, until we were arrested. <laughs> and then as we were being arrested, though, the police officers, one of them said to us, we're with you. Mm. And I did say, well, then why are you arresting us? You know, but, that, right. but I think that's what we want. You know, we want to expose that. And uh, St. Augustine, you know, he said an unjust law is no law at all. It's our job to disobey 
the unjust laws just as much as it's our job to obey the just laws. So we've, we've challenged anti-homeless laws. We've challenged, you know, lots of different um, policies of our government. And, um, and we go to jail sometimes. And we have a really rich history in jail. As you think of Jesus, the disciples, so many holy troublemakers throughout history have gone to jail. So it's never our goal to go to jail. But uh, as John Lewis, the great John Lewis said, we can always smile in our mugshots because we know that we're on the right side of history. (laughs) So, you know, I I think that's what we see. And right now we see, you know, our streets are crying out with the blood that still cries out to God from the ground. Our our streets, there's people that are saying, uh, we can't breathe, you know, with with George Floyd, with Eric Garner, with all those lives that that have been squashed. Uh, um, uh, so, So I think, you know, as our country is aching right now, I think of that beautiful scripture in Romans. It says, the entire creation is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. And it says, we are groaning with it. And I I see that groaning happening everywhere. But it's interesting that it says it's in the the labor pains of childbirth. We're giving birth to something. We're we're giving birth to a new world, you know? Um, and, And I think that's the possibility that this moment holds is, um, it, there are pains, there is sweat, there is blood, and yet um, the the wonderful activist and lawyer, Valerie Tower, she says, uh, the darkness that we're in right now may not be the darkness of the tomb of the death of America, but it may be actually the darkness of the womb that America is actually just now being born. So that that's what I hope, and that's what I work for, you know, and I see that in Scripture, that we are to be the midwives of a better world. We're to seek God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And I am convinced that God's kingdom is not a hundred people dying a day of gun violence. God's kingdom is not people dying uh, from the death penalty. And it's not, you know, bombs that have the capacity to kill thousands of people. It's not folks that are being killed by police and one in three black folks going to jail. Like I, I think God has a different dream for America and that's what we're pursuing. Ah, oh, that's so good. And, and it just brings me back to one of uh, the quotes that really stuck out to me in Beating Guns. Uh, and, and this is just me uh, kind of uh, uh, try to, trying to recall it from memory, but it, basically it's something to the effect of politicians, by and large, aren't the ones who enact change, it's the people. And it just seems like that is no more true than now with just the um, number of people uh, who have gone out to protest and and scream like hey this this has to change and and it hasn't stopped and it's continued to go on and uh because it just feels it just feels to me like right now uh is the time where finally we're just saying enough is enough yeah man we're the people we've been waiting on you know i i say sometimes we we throw our hands up at god and, and we say uh god why don't you do something and if we listen closely, we might hear God say back, I did do something. I made you. You know, we're waiting on God, and God might be waiting on us. <laughs> right. So, so I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing in that, in that passage, too, where of beaten swords into plows. It actually says at the end of that text, nation will not rise up against nation, and people will learn violence no more. But what I love is that it begins with the people, the people who are fed up 
with violence, and they begin to literally melt down and transform their weapons into garden tools. And it's the people that rise up, and they are the ones that lead the way to peace, not the politicians. So I think change comes from the bottom up, not from the top down, just like water boils, you know, but boils from the bottom up. And I think that's what we see happening in our country is change is happening and uh, and the folks that are tired of death are um are are transforming things and and the beauty of our swords and the plows thing is that uh you know as we're transforming guns into garden tools is it literally in the matter of 1 hour we go from a piece of metal that is designed to kill into a piece of metal that you know is a is a garden tool and you see this concrete change you know and as we're transforming it there's something kind of sacramental, you know, it's a word we use in the church. It means it's a holy mystery, you know, because as we're doing it, we are praying for the transformation of our streets and of our country. And it's more than just one little gun that we're, we're dealing with. I think we're really participating in a movement, in a holy movement of, uh, uh, of life, you know, in the transformation of life. And as I worship Jesus, I see one who absorbed all the violence and hatred that we are capable of, and he subverted it with love and forgiveness and an empty tomb. And so that, you know, inspires me to know that the end of the story is that life wins, you know, love wins, death has lost its sting and the tomb is empty. Yeah. Uh, what? So I'd be remiss if, if I let you go without uh, asking you to talk a little bit about what I call I and when I talk to your friend uh, Jonathan Martin, I, I, I mentioned the same thing to him. I I just love your approach and his approach uh, when it comes to um, just what I refer to as just this gentle and very peaceful and loving way to engage with people who maybe you disagree with. And and I know that you both had kind of your your encounters with uh, uh, one of the the primary. Uh, individuals who I would say probably we, we would kind of disagree with Jerry Falwell Jr. Right. And yeah, in terms of the way that he is kind of, uh, portrayed Christianity. And I just think I look back to like, cause I, I believe in, I'll let you tell the story, but like you even wrote him a letter and tried to reach out to him. And I thought, what a beautiful, just gentle approach to really trying to engage with somebody that, that you might disagree with. Yeah, well, you know, what what became clear to me is that one of our problems in the sort of landscape of Christianity in America is that some of the loudest, most prominent voices haven't always been the most beautiful or <laughs> faithful, you right. know. And so and that's our problem with, you know, when when Jerry Falwell says that Trump, Donald Trump is the dream president for Christians which he said, um, it's not just his reputation that's on the line. He's, he's kind of colonizing all of us into that, you know, and, 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 you know, a reporter asked him point blank, how do you reconcile your loyalty to Jesus and your loyalty to Trump? And he said, well, I don't look, this is, I, I watched it multiple times, so I wouldn't misquote him. He said, I don't look to Jesus when it comes to forming my political beliefs. And I'm like, man, that's our problem, right? Like, I don't know how the, you know, now, 
you know, former president of the largest, one of the largest evangelical schools, how people can hang with that. You know, like I don't look to Jesus when it comes to politics as if Jesus is totally irrelevant when it comes to whether or not we welcome immigrants, you know, or whatever. So I, I think like what, what I did is reach out to him. I believe in Matthew 18, you know, that we should, if I were, uh, we've got friction with our brother or sister, we should talk directly to them. I asked him if he would pray with me even once a month, you know, just privately on the phone. Um, ne- you know, never had him accept any of that. And we, you know, began to say, well, we'd like to come to Lynchburg and, uh, have a prayer meeting. And, you know, we were organizing this with, uh, folks that were students and alumni. I've got one of, uh, my closest friends is a Liberty, uh, university grad. He's, uh, works in our office and at Red Letter Christians. And so we started saying, let's have a prayer service in Lynchburg. So we did this, uh, revival in Lynchburg and I, asked him permission um, after I'd heard that Jonathan had, you know, kind of been shuffled off campus uh, or, you know, forced off campus. And so we reached out and said, let's ask him, you know, straightforward if we can come pray on campus. So I sent Jerry Falwell an email that said, we're having this revival service. We'd love for you to come. We'd even love to have a conversation about how Jesus um, uh, informs how we're engaging right now in, in our, you know, current country, you know, climate and our politically. And so anyway, we asked if we could come pray on campus. And I wanted to pray in three specific places where they built a gun range and he's encouraged all the students to get guns. So we said, let's pray there. And then we wanted to pray at the drone training center where they're training people, you know, to fly militarized drones uh, for war. Let's pray for peace. Let's, And then we could pray at, uh, you know, his office. And I said, so we won't bring any amplification. It's genuinely a prayer service. And then, you know, I thought we might get a, yeah, you can come pray. You can't, you know, protest and make noise and stuff, but you can come pray. But I got a letter back that said, um, if you set foot on our campus, you will be arrested. You could be arrested. You could also be fined, you know, thousands of dollars. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I couldn't even believe it, you know? Yeah. But so then, you know, we're praying about this and we're like, uh, what do we do? And I believe in the third way of Jesus is what we often say, you know, is, is, uh, uh, like let, let's find the narrow way that is neither a direct confrontation, nor is it backing down. Like it's kind of courage, but love together. And so we, um, what we did, man, I don't know if you know this part of the story, but we, uh, Tony Campolo was there and he's had, you know, this ongoing relationship with the Falwells and a lot of grace, you know, praise for them all the time. And, um, we said, well, let's write all of our prayers down and we'll give them to Tony and Tony can take them, you know, onto campus. Cause we thought they're not going to arrest an 85 year old evangelist, right. you know, Baptist evangelist for going onto their campus. And, uh, so, Tony is willing, so we write all our prayers down. He delivers them. And I couldn't tell the rest of the story until recently now that Jerry's gone, I think. But when Tony goes on the campus, John, check this out. He goes and delivers them at the office. And the first person that sees him, the receptionist at the front desk, says, Tony Campolo, you're one of my favorite preachers. <laughs> and I thought, man, that, that's the like craziest irony in all of this is like we we you know like we got to be able to talk we got to be able to do better like our deepest allegiance is not to the donkey of the democrats or the elephant of the republicans it's to jesus and to the lamb of god so it's like figure out how to have a better conversation for the love of god (laughs) yeah literally yeah 
Oh man. Well, before Isn't I let that you, great, though? that's Tony Campolo, I had <laughs> I had heard I had heard all of it like, up until that last part. Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The New York Times are there and everything. And they're like, we can't tell that part because she'll get fired. But I think now she's probably in the clear with old Jerry Falwell. Yeah. But, you know, bless him. Yeah, he's not had um, the best week. <laughs> I talked to Tony just just recently, and Tony had a stroke a few weeks ago. He's re- recovering pretty well. But for folks that don't know, Tony Campolo is a He's uh, my partner at Red Letter Christians. He was my sociology teacher before that, but he's a wonderful preacher. And um, so I talked to him, and he's you know his speech is not what it what it, it's getting better all the time. But he um, wanted me to make sure that I was praying for Jerry Falwell and for his family. And I thought, what grace is that? That yeah. here's Tony, you know, really fighting to get out his words. And one of the things that he wants me to hear is that we need to be praying for Jerry Falwell. At this moment, you know, yeah, gosh. So I think that's that's the grace we believe in. You know that God's grace is big enough for Donald Trump, and if it's not big enough for him, it's not big enough for me. And and so we need to have hearts that are big, but also aren't aren't afraid to speak truth. And I think we we need that right now in our country. You know, I, I think we're at a crossroads where we have a choice between love and fear. And the scripture is so beautifully clear that perfect love casteth out fear. So I, I think that's the question is what would America look like if love rather than fear were compelling our policies, you know, our rhetoric, our lives. And so that that's my prayer these days, every day. Let me choose love instead of fear. Oh, gosh. Well, I, 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 I want to end this on, uh, give, by giving you an opportunity to, cause I, I think, you know, as you kind of mentioned earlier, a lot of times so often, uh, at least in, in the U S anyway, the, the loudest folks, the people with the biggest microphone, uh, are the folks who, who don't always make Christians or Christianity look, uh, look so appealing, you know, and, and, you know, we do within our, our friend circles with, you know, at least, you know, folks that I've talked to before who, who maybe aren't Christian are like, you know, I don't understand, like, it, it's so hypocritical and, and a lot of other words that, you know, that I'm sure you've heard as well. Um, so I would love for you to kind of end on, like, assuming we had a microphone as big as <laughs> you know, some of these folks, like, what, what would your pitch be? What, how, you know, how would you describe uh, Christianity through, through your lens? Mm. One of the like reasons we call ourselves red letter Christians, some people might not catch the uh, the little wink there, is that um, some of the old Bibles have the words of Jesus highlighted in red. You know, um, they sort of stand out in, in red font. And um, one of my friends was being interviewed um, by a radio DJ, and the guy didn't seem to have a whole lot to do with Christianity, but he said, I've read a lot of the Bible, and there's parts of love, there's parts that I'm pretty confusing and he said but i've always liked the stuff in red and he said uh, to my priest he said you you seem to like the stuff in red you should call yourselves uh, red letter christians and it kind of stuck because i think what we saw is there are a lot of competing narratives of what christianity is about just as there is in islam you know i mean there's violent expressions there's all kinds of different you know ways that people distort all of our faith but for me as a christian um, I began to see that one of the biggest obstacles to Jesus is Christians who profess Jesus with our mouths, but our lives tell a different story. And so I'm not trying to be, 
you know, pretentious or better than them, but actually just to say like, um, Christian means Christ-like and a lot of things that, um, sort of, uh, camouflage themselves as Christianity. They, they, they aren't really very Christ-like at all. And, um, so, so I, you know, we want a Christianity that looks like Jesus, that loves like Jesus, and and the things that Jesus talked about are so clear. Jesus says, "When what you, whatever you do to the least of these, you do it unto me." In fact, he says that in the final judgment, all of us are going to be gathered before God, and the questions that we're going to be asked are not, you know, tricky doctrinal questions. Uh, it's not going to be that God goes, "Okay, virgin bird, agree or disagree," you know, like, <laughs> yeah. but we're going to be asked. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in prison, did you come visit? When I was an immigrant, did you welcome me in? You know, when, when I was um, in need of healthcare, did you did you take care of me? Whatever we do to the most vulnerable people, like we do to Christ. So, I, I think that's um, that's what I would like to leave people with, you know. And and it's not that our work. Sometimes, you know, my fellow Christians they go, "Oh, you sounds like you're saying you earn your salvation." I'm like, "No, no, no." Like. Jesus paved the way for our salvation. Our works don't earn our salvation, but they do demonstrate it. If, if, if our faith does not demonstrate itself, if it does not have meaning, and if it does not translate into justice for the most vulnerable people in our society, then we, we shouldn't call it Christianity. You know, if it's yeah. not about welcoming immigrants and caring for widows and orphans, then it's something else. It's not the Christianity that I see in Christ. Um, and then, you know, the last thing I'll say, John, is I, I think, you know, sometimes we, we need that same grace with each other when we fall short of who we want to be. So sometimes when people say to me, um, the church is full of hypocrites, you know, we, we, we sometimes say, uh, Tony and I always go, no, it's not. We've always got room for more. The church <laughs> is not full of hypocrites. We've always got room for more. <laughs> you know? yeah, because yeah. I, I, I really think that part of the story is that this whole thing is about imperfect people falling in love with a perfect God, and we're just trying to help each other become more and more like that God, and we're going to always fall short. Um, but that is also why it troubles me so deeply when um, folks are justifying the very things that Jesus so clearly spoke out against, you know, self-righteousness and um hurting those who are vulnerable. And, and you know, so um, um, we, we want a Christianity that looks like Jesus. And the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Like, that's what God's like. That's who we're aspiring to be. And that's our litmus test for anything. You know, that's even my litmus test for voting. I'm going to go, I'm going to vote for love. <laughs> yes. I'm going to vote for joy. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to vote for those things uh, in November and every day. Ah, I'm with you. <laughs> well, that that's beautiful. Man, thank you so much for coming on. This was definitely uh, yeah, a pleasure, man. So I appreciate it. Let's do it again sometime. It's a great conversation, brother. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can uh, follow our work, too. I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, we, we always want more and more folks that are looking for kind of a faith home uh, to check out redletterchristians.org. So, uh think a lot of you'll be refreshed by what you see there. So thanks so much for having me, John. Oh, thank you so much. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. And, uh, and like I said, thanks again for coming on and we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. Awesome, brother. Starting to rhyme, I'm letting go of-
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.